I was walking around Spirit Rock today in the evening and I was just feeling so much gratitude for being here and so much love of Spirit Rock and the sense of thinking about how my life has changed over the decades that I've practiced. And of course, I never know who I would have been had I not found the practice. But I was recently um, with a bunch of my colleagues and we were playing this game. And the game was, um, the game was, who do you think you would have been if you never found mindfulness or dharma or meditation? So if you want to know what dharma teachers do for fun, just to hang out. <laughs> they sit around and play party games like this. Um, but I was, it was really an interesting reflection and I thought about it some and I thought about who I was, I found that the, um, I started meditating when I was about 20, 22, something like that. And before that, I was very self-critical, very driven, very um, needed to succeed, needed to get the A, needed to um, really do well and impress people, impress my peers, very judgmental, very anxious. All of those qualities were qualities that I had. So I'm imagining that had I not found practice, and of course other things that I did in my life, um, those would have just kept developing and developing and who knows where they, how they would have turned out. Um, so I'm imagining I might have had some high-powered job where I was very successful and entirely unhappy on my third, fourth, fifth divorce. and um, I don't know. I don't know who I would have been. But it's interesting to reflect. And then it's interesting also to to connect in with the feeling of gratitude that I have for this practice and the simplicity of mindfulness, the simplicity of what we are doing here today. It's so amazing. We're so lucky to be here in a place that supports this. In a place where just for this day and this weekend you have the opportunity to devote yourself entirely to the practice of waking up. That's it. You have no other job. All your other job, your parenting, your work, your all, it's, all, it's all aside. And you get to wake up. And that's what you're doing here. So I wanted to talk tonight some about the, the specifics, just to go into more depth about what mindfulness is and ways that it impacts us and also talk about things that get in the way, where we get into trouble, where we get snagged, and also how we can be more loving to ourselves. Because I think probably when I think about my whole journey of these many years, it's that piece of cultivating more self-compassion that has really transformed my life. And I attribute it without question to this practice. That judgmental, critical voice, the nastiness that I suffered from for many, many years, doesn't exist in that way at this time. So mindfulness. We've been talking about mindfulness all day. I'm not sure we defined it. The definition that I like to use is paying attention to our present moment experiences with openness, curiosity, and a willingness to be with what is. And I love the piece about a willingness to be with what is, because we're showing up for each moment with openness, with curiosity, being present, 
and then we take what we get. Oftentimes we don't want to do that. So we can be in the past, we can be in the future, we can bring our mind into the present moment, and then we can be in resistance to the present moment. We can want it to be different, we can want to want it to we can be analyzing it, comparing it, judging it, thinking it should be a different way. And mindfulness is the invitation to just be with it as it is, to stop the struggle, to really drop the struggle. This is what mindfulness is about on a deeper level. Because of course we know mindfulness is in popular culture these days. I mean, it's all over the place. You've probably seen it. There's been maybe three main, three new main media um, I think it was in like the LA Times, the New York Times, and another magazine, all within the last couple of weeks. Mindfulness is very popular these days. In fact, I found this um, ad here. It's for cultural probiotics. Um, and it's, it talks about optimal health begins in the core of your body, the intestinal tract. And it's a picture of a woman meditating. And it says, she who possesses an enlightened digestive system... <laughs> will be blessed with stronger immunity and happiness, not to mention potentially looser-fitting genes. I did not make this up. (laughs) I don't know where it came from. But anyway, there it is. So we hear about mindfulness. Pay attention. Bring your mind into the present. And I think it is really, it's out there in the world in in a kind of new public way, in ways that I haven't seen it like that many, many years ago. But at the same time, the depth of mindfulness can get lost. It can just be about, okay, how do we mindfully be more productive at work? You know, that's a lot of, that's a lot of what people want to use it for, which in some ways is great because maybe mindfulness can, be more, can make us more productive and that's sort of a Trojan horse that brings mindfulness into all sorts of businesses and workplaces. And then people connect with it, but then there's a depth. And I think that you're seeing today, even in just this one day or day and a half of practice, the depth of what mindfulness is about. That it's about this waking up process. That it's about not being in resistance and in the struggle, dropping the struggle. And it's not about having a very specific, certain kind of experience. I think so many of us come here with this idea, okay, I'm going to have this experience and that's going to prove that I am, um, uh, that I've gotten my money's worth at Spirit Rock or that I'm actually a good meditator or it's going to prove that I'm a good person if I have this experience. But we're not here to have experiences. I mean, you might think you're here to have experiences, but the fact is... We're here to cultivate a mind that can be present with all of life, no matter what life brings. So maybe today was challenging, rough. Maybe today was uh, exciting. Maybe it was super boring. Maybe it was um, a whole combination of things, a roller coaster of ups and downs. We all have our experience. And It's not like you were supposed to have it a certain way. And you probably noticed by now that if you came here thinking that you were supposed to have it a certain way, you're suffering a little bit around that. Am I right? Anybody show up with an expectation? Come on. (laughs) All right, raise your hand if your expectation has been met. A few people. Okay, good. (laughs) It's just interesting. I was... um, 
Anyway, it's just interesting to experience how we get taken up, how our mind gets pulled into these expectations and these ideas of what we're supposed to be doing and how we're supposed to be practicing. And the idea really is simply just to be. To be with what is. This willingness to open to things as they are. It's really, really key. So mindfulness, our mind is lost in the past, lost in the future. And you've probably noticed how much today your mind has been in the past or the future. It's incredible. And if I had talked to you last week and I said, is your mind lost in the past and the future a lot? You probably would say, sometimes. But now you've seen it in living color today, how much this mind is lost in the past or the future. Replaying things, ruminating, feeling bad, feeling worse about things that have happened. I could have done it differently or obsessing, planning, catastrophizing, thinking the worst case scenario. The mind is going back and forth, past and future. And then, as I said, when it's in the present, it's not really even here. It's here with analysis, judgment, complaint, and so forth. Mindfulness is this incredible tool that trains us to come and be right here, right now. And it seems that And I'm going to talk some about the research behind mindfulness because I do a lot of, um, I'm connected with that at UCLA. But it seems that mindfulness, when they look at all of the studies, and there's been thousands of studies done with mindfulness, the one finding that is consistent across all of the studies is that mindfulness makes people happier. I mean, it's really, it's really interesting because you can't really, it's hard to measure mindfulness. I don't know if you know this, but the scientists can't find the part of the brain that is mindfulness. It's not in there if they look. I mean, you can't look, obviously. But if they try to figure it out, you can't figure it out. The only way we can figure out what mindfulness is is through subjective reports, people talking about their own level of mindfulness. And for associ- from associated mind states that are in different parts of the brain, that they can say, oh, okay, this part of the brain that's connected to self-awareness, this seems to be very active. Or this part of the brain that's connected to delayed gratification, this seems to be active. And so you can kind of put together a composite sense of what mindfulness is. But happiness comes up again and again. And there was an interesting research study done last year where they, um, they wanted to see if people were, who were in the moment were happier. And so what they did was they looked, they had 2,500 people across the country, or actually across the world, who were beeped on their smartphones periodically during the course of the day. And they were asked three questions. What are you doing right now? Is your mind on it? And how do you feel? And what they found was that if they reported that their mind was on the activity, they reported more happiness than if their mind was wandering to something else. Even if they were doing activities that were unpleasant. So let's say they hated washing the dishes, but they were staying really present with it. They were happier. Now it turned out if your mind was wandering to something pleasant, Actually, that, was, that brought you some happiness, too. <laughs> but that kind of runs out after a certain point. 
And so mindfulness, so this connection between mindfulness and happiness was kind of shown in that study, but there's been lots and lots of interesting research. Research looking at, there was one um, just came out, just published a couple of weeks ago, about mindfulness and attention and helping with the wandering, distracted mind. They looked at 48 students who were studying for the GRE, the graduate record exam, right? And they, um, this was done at University of California, Santa Barbara, and they had the, half of them take a nutrition class and half of them take a mindfulness class. And at the end, they compared how they did on the, on the SAT, or the GRE, sorry. And the people who practiced, you can guess, right? Who did better? <laughs> of course. <laughs> We're at a mindfulness retreat, the mindfulness people. If this was a nutrition retreat, I might have a different result for you. But... Um, no, the mindfulness people, they, um, they, were, they did better. They simply scored better. And it seems that the reason, what they looked at, was that their minds were wandering less. Their minds were wandering less, and therefore they were less distracted and able to stay attuned to, um, to the test and then do better. And so the researchers were very excited because before they looked at mindfulness, people were speculating, how do you stop people's mind from wandering? I mean, especially right now in this culture where our minds are being more and more distracted every second, right? We talked about this some with all the technology. We need to have an anti-technology or a new technology, a new technology that brings our mind into the present, that helps us be here. And this study is, you know, a beginning study looking at that. But I caution you because mindfulness is not just about doing better at taking tests. It's, not, it's good. That, it's great. That's a wonderful service if people will get better at taking tests. But it's so much more than that. So the research is looking at attention, looking at um, wandering mind, looking at happiness. Mindfulness helps with mental health concerns, physical health concerns. There was a study done with people who had psoriasis. Psoriasis, the itchy skin condition. So people, the typical treatment for psoriasis is to go into like almost a light tanning booth and you get UVB rays on your skin. So they had half the group practice meditation along with that and the other half just did the regular treatment. The people who got the, got the meditation practice with the treatment healed three times faster than the people who did it alone. So it seems like it boosts the immune system, it impacts the healing response, it helps with stress-related conditions, and there's been a lot of research on that. And I was mentioning mental health. So it helps with anxiety, with depression, with obsessive-compulsive <laughs> disorder. It's been incorporated into lots of treatments around this. The most interesting research, well, there's a couple, two areas, actually. One of the most interesting research areas is the area of the neuroscience. We're looking at brains of people who meditate. So the big study that was done out of Harvard in 2005 looked at um, the, the advanced meditators, the people who had been meditating in the caves in the Himalayas for 30, 40 years. And they looked at their brain. These are the Olympic athletes of meditation. You can think of them, right? They're really serious. And they looked at their brains, and they compared their brains to people of the same age. So I don't know if you know this, but as you age, your brain thins out. Did you know it? If you want something else to worry about, you got it. It's called age-related cortical decline. Our brain thins out. 
But the people who meditated, these serious meditators, this did not happen, especially in certain areas of the brain. Their brains stayed plump. That's what you want, a plump brain. You want a lot of gray matter, a lot of gray matter. And what they found, in their, particularly in two areas, the prefrontal cortex and the insula cortex. The prefrontal cortex is something that's really, impo- is, is kind of what we call the CEO of the brain. It's responsible for delayed gratification, for flexible thinking. It's responsible also for synthesizing information from the body and brain. Also the insula does that. So it's, it's really, it's something you want to be working well. It's what kids develop over time. When they don't have a lot of impulse control, there, it's usually because it's early on in their development. The prefrontal cortex hasn't, hasn't grown enough yet. So you're thinking, okay, I just told you about these meditators who have thick prefrontal cortexes, but you've been practicing for a day. What about me? Well, they did a research study in the la- recently where they looked at people who were novice meditators who were only practicing for, the last, for about eight weeks on an average of 27 minutes a day. And what they found with them was that they also noticed minute structural changes in their brains after only eight weeks, thickening in the brains. This is connected to the idea of neuroplasticity. Neuroplasticity is the concept that our brain continues to develop based on how we work with it, what we do with it. So they used to think that our brains stopped developing by the time we were about 25. And now they know that our brains continue to change, that new neural pathways form, that old ones are pruned, as we, as, we go, as we age um, in our life, depending on what we do with it. For example, they did a research study looking at taxi drivers in London. For those of you who've been to London, you know it is a very complex city. You have to be, have a very active brain to figure out how to drive around London. So they looked at the brains of London taxi drivers, and they found that the part of the brain responsible for map reading was thicker than for people, just regular, ordinary people who didn't do it. So it seems like the brain will change and grow with the skills that you ask for it to do, or what you try to do. So essentially, and this was said by the Buddha 2,500 years ago, we might think of the Buddha as the first neuroscientist. And he said that, um, well, I'm paraphrasing, but what you practice, you will cultivate. He said if you plant a fig, you will get a fig tree. You will not get a peach tree. And so, in other words, if you want to become kinder, practice kindness. If you want to be meaner, practice meanness. It works the same way. This is how we train our brains. And this is what's happening with the, what we're doing here today. We're actually transforming our brains over time, can lead to a thickening of this prefrontal cortex, can lead to more emotional regulation, better health, better sense of well-being and happiness. Even there's even some research showing that it can, it can impact our, ge- our gene expression. That the part of the that um, that the protective part. Of a cro- on the, um, our DNA and the chromosome, it, that people who meditate have um, like 
more like less frayed telomeres. This is, you know what I'm realizing? It's a little more complex than I'm going to get into. But basically, it's good for you. <laughs> Mindfulness is good for you. So, um, so it can even impact our genetic structure. That's pretty wild. So mindfulness is being with our present moment experience again and again, moment after moment, with openness, curiosity, and a willingness to be with what is. Mindfulness can have different characteristics. It can be vast, it can be narrow. So sometimes you might have noticed when you're walking around Spirit Rock that your mind is wide open and you're taking in all sorts of sights and sounds and there's a turkey that kind of goes across and is so amazing to see his blue head and you notice that and you're mindful and you're really present and it feels like your mindfulness is wide open. We can think of this as almost like a telephoto lens kind of mindfulness. And sometimes our mindfulness is very narrow, as though we're noticing just the teeniest, tiniest aspect of our breath. And we can see every little minute detail as that breath arises and passes away. And you might think of this more as the telephoto lens of your mindfulness. And so, so neither one is better. They're called for at different times. So if you're doing the walking meditation and suddenly you just feel drawn to noticing, you don't have to stop the mindfulness. You just open, you move from the narrow mindfulness to the wide open mindfulness. And there's something in, we learn to discriminate when to be, how to use the awareness, when to be narrow, when to be wide. And sometimes it's somewhere in between or it's a combination. So my friend was teaching her daughter to drive And she had really sharp focus. She was really good at that narrow mindfulness, but she had no peripheral vision. So she was driving along and she was practically hitting all the mailboxes and, you know, it was because she couldn't, she couldn't do the wide open. So you need to do a combination of both of these in order to have, um, sort of have your mindfulness be uh, relevant, mindfulness be current responding to life as it as you connect with it. So there's lots of things as we try to practice mindfulness. I'm imagining that you're finding lots of things getting in the way. That it seems like a good idea. It seemed really easy. Maybe the first sit went really well. Maybe there was a two-minute period in the third sit that went really well. But that there's that there there's many things that come up and kind of obscure the mindfulness, as Mark, Mark was talking about today. So I want to talk about some just just give you a little bit of an overview of some of the classical problems we often run into when we meditate, because I think it might help you see that you're not the only one. Typically, they're called hindrances, things that we th- or I like to think of them as obstacles, meaning. You're meditating, you're doing great, and suddenly you get really sleepy. And then it feels like, oh, I'm so sleepy, I can't meditate at all, my, I can't practice. And so you just want to give up, or you think something's wrong, or you think you're the worst meditator here. Anybody here think you're the worst meditator? <laughs> Don't worry. Okay, good, raise your hand. Who's the worst meditator? <laughs> of course you're not the worst meditator. <laughs> there is no worst meditator. 
We're all doing so well, really. We're all doing the best we can. But that feeling can arise. We can believe it. So let's talk a little bit about these hindrances. Um, We get caught with the hindrances of sleepiness. Sleepiness is a big one. Many of us have felt sleepy today at some point or another. We've talked about this some. The need for, um, that for most people to get more sleep. And so we come to a meditation retreat, our mind gets, we get sleepy. We usually may fall asleep or get close to that. It's not a big deal. It's something that usually works itself out through the course of the retreat. We learned standing meditation. We learned how to open our eyes and you can wiggle your toes. You can go out and do more walking meditation. Anything that's going to bring energy into your practice is useful. But the other thing about it, with any of these obstacles that we encounter, and this is when I go back to mindfulness is more than just learning to pay attention to study for the test or to have the test. Mindfulness can teach us how to be present in the midst of whatever we're experiencing. So if we're experiencing sleepiness, our mind's going to tell us, wow, I shouldn't be sleepy. And if I keep being sleepy, I'm going to really screw up this retreat and I'm not going to get anything out of it or whatever your mind is going to do. But actually, surprise, sleepiness is your retreat in this moment. This is it. This is what you got. So you get to bring your mindfulness to sleepiness. How do you be mindful of sleepiness? Well, what's happening in my body and mind? Heaviness, wooziness, a feeling of kind of being in the fog. This is your practice. This is it. And with anything that arises that gets in the way, it becomes our practice. Everything is our practice. There is nothing outside of our practice. Restlessness comes and goes. Many of us have felt restless since we're here. That's a second hindrance, a second obstacle that we encounter. We want to run out of the room screaming. Or we're feeling our mind is restless, our body is restless. We just can't wait for it to end. This is a little um, dialogue uh, that I think really sums up the restless mind. And it's from, um, it's from when that book Eat, Pray, Love was out. Um, well, from the book Eat, Pray, Love. But she's in, if, you're, if you um, remember the book, for those of you who read it, she's in a monastery or, or an ashram practicing meditation. And this is a dialogue she has with her mind. And she says, me, okay, we're going to meditate now. Let's draw att- our attention to our breath, rising, falling. And her mind says, I can help you out with this, you know. And she says, okay, good, because I need your help. Let's go, rising, falling. And the mind says, I can help you think of nice meditative images like, hey, here's a good one. Imagine you're a temple, a temple on an island, and the island is in in the ocean. Me, oh, that's a nice image. Mind, thanks, I thought of it myself. (laughs) Me, but what ocean are we picturing here? Mind, the Mediterranean. Imagine you're one of those Greek islands with an old Greek temple on it. Oh, no, never mind. That's too touristy. You know what? Forget the ocean. Oceans are too dangerous. Here's a better idea. Imagine you're an island on a lake instead. Me. Can we meditate now, please? 
mind, yes, definitely. But try not to picture that the lake is covered with those, what's it called, jet skis? Yes, jet skis. Those things consume so much fuel. They're a menace to the environment. You know what else uses a lot of fuel? Leaf blowers. You wouldn't think so, but me, okay, but let's meditate, please, please. Right, I definitely want to help you meditate. And that's why we're going to skip the image of the island on a lake or an ocean, because that's not working. So let's imagine you're an island on a river. <laughs> and then that goes on for a little while, and then she says... Um, Okay, therefore, in conclusion, let's meditate on this image. Envision you're an island in a river, all the thoughts that float by you as you're meditating. These are just the river's natural currents, and you can ignore them because you are an island. Me. Wait, I thought you said I was a temple. Mine. That's right. Sorry, you're a temple on an island. In fact, you're both the temple and the island. Me. Am I also the river? Mine. No, the river is just the thoughts. Me. Stop, please. You're making me crazy. Mine. Wounded. Sorry, I was only trying to help. <laughs> Sound familiar? <laughs> this is, I mean, this is what our minds do. This restless mind with a million thoughts going on and on and on, taking you from one story to the next. I like to think of our thoughts as um, trains. I've often, if you've worked with me, you know, I use this metaphor quite a bit, but the, our, our thoughts are like trains. We just get on the train and we go. One thought leads to the next thought, leads to the next thought, the next thought, and the next thing you know, we are 20 miles down that track, lost in thought, lost in thought. So we have an option. One of the options is that when we finally realize we're lost in thought, we can get off the train. Okay? Just get off the train. No need to be caught by this anxious, restless thinking, or just any kind of thinking. Just get off the train. The other option is that we never get on the train in the first place. That we can stay in the station and let the train go. And you may have had that experience at some point while you were meditating today, that you just were sitting here, you were with your breath, a thought came, wow, I better remember to call such and such, and you just didn't get on the train. You didn't get hooked by it. You didn't get caught by our thoughts. And the, and the thought just went. And you weren't there. You weren't in the grip of it. We call this non-identification or disidentification. It's when we can be having experiences and not be caught in the grip of them. So a thought comes and a thought goes, just like in the river, the river of thoughts floating by, or a sky with clouds floating by. And we are not caught by them. It's like there's a little space. It, it stopped, instead of it being my thought in which I'm so lost in and there's so many problems because I'm having this thought, it's merely a thought that's passing by. And that's it. Thoughts are amazing. I'm going to digress from the hindrances for a minute. I'm going to talk about the, the thoughts for a moment because thoughts are incredible. Thoughts make our universe, right? Thoughts are, somebody had a thought, I want to start a retreat center in Marin County, and here we are 20 years later. Wow, what a beautiful place. We've had thoughts, I mean, you, every single one of you has had amazing thoughts. And you've also had thoughts that lead to suffering, in fact, many, many of our thoughts lead to suffering. Am I right? We have to learn to distinguish which thoughts are helpful and which thoughts are not so helpful. That's part of what meditation can help us do. So our job is to, when we know, to be aware of our thoughts, 
But my favorite bumper sticker, which many of you have heard, it says, don't believe everything you think. Right? Don't believe everything you think. Have you seen that bumper sticker? Um, I used, when I lived here, I lived in the Bay Area, I saw it a lot. I moved to Los Angeles, I never see it. <laughs> I don't know. But it's the reminder that thoughts are coming and going. They're passing through us. And if we grab onto them, we can sometimes, sometimes some of them, invite a lot of suffering. Judgmental thoughts, thoughts, excessive catastrophizing thoughts, worried thoughts, depressed thoughts, angry thoughts, irritated. These thoughts, they can lead to a lot of suffering. And our job is to become aware of them and not get on the train. Sometimes it can be like a, like a pricking a balloon. I get, you know how in a cartoon there's a thought bubble coming out of people's heads? I always think of um, mindfulness as like a, a pin that pricks the balloon of thoughts. So you might be, have you noticed the experience of meditating and suddenly a thought comes and you say, thinking, and boom, the thought disappears. Isn't that amazing? It's kind of incredible when you think about how we can relate to our mind differently. We don't have to be at the mercy in the grip of our thoughts. And we can move from it being my thought to the thought. Thoughts have so much power. I'm going to tell this story. and I, the, um, Well, there are a couple of things to say. But I had this experience a few years ago where my daughter... Um, had this little mole on her cheek and it suddenly appeared out of nowhere and she had until that point she didn't really have too many things going on and her um uh, her skin was fairly unblemished and so she gets this mole and I have to confess when you're a new mom you get a little cuckoo right? Any new parents here know what I'm talking about? You get a little cuckoo, right? So everything, you don't, you don't really know what you're doing. You've only recently had a child. You're, you know, they send it home from the hospital without any instructions and you're, there you are. So, so my daughter had this mole and my mind suddenly began to create a world. Oh my goodness, is this cancerous? What is this? What am I going to do? I've got now I'm going to have to call the dermatologist. I'm going to have to bring her in. That means I might have to miss a day of work. And if I have to miss that day of work, what's that going to mean? And my mind was off and running. And then, you know, I tried to be mindful, take a few breaths. Okay, it's just a thought. And then, and then, um, and then I remember, then I'm thinking, huh, I wonder, I, it, and not to say, I don't have, by the way, I don't have anything against moles for people of you here who have moles. It's just when the, sometimes the baby's skin is so unblemished and you kind of go, wow, what is this thing? It's changing. Everything's changing. So then um, I was watching TV and I saw uh, uh, the, the actress Rachel McAdams. Have you ever seen her? She has moles. She's gorgeous. And I thought, oh, my daughter could be a moly person who's gorgeous one day. <laughs> It's not a bad thing. It's a wonderful thing. Moles are beautiful. And I went through this whole story about moles and how moles can be beautiful. And what does it mean? And is it this? And is it that? And then, then about a day or two later, my daughter was scratching her cheek and pop came off. It was a scab. <laughs> this is the problem of being an older parent. Your eyes are not that good. So... So, but in that moment of the mole, the scab popping off, 
it was like this incredible world I had created for myself just disappeared on the spot, right? I had doctor's plans and visits and her acting career and the this and the, but you know, everything all worked out. And it was all, it was all illusory. It just popped like, like, like the balloon popping. Now, this is a story of something somewhat silly, and for some of us, something like that happens, and it's actually really real, and there's, there is something to worry about and um, maybe to take action for. So I'm not, I'm not undermining that. And what I would say at that point is that's when practice really has to come in, where we work with our minds around the fear and anxiety and trying to stay in the moment and not going to the worst-case scenario. And, um, and we learn to use our practice to help us through difficult times. And it's tremendously helpful. And any time in my life that I have been in difficult experience, mindfulness has been my best friend. It is what I rely on, what I remember to come back to my breath, come back to my body, to bring kindness into the present moment, compassion. This is what has gotten me through anything that is difficult. And this is not to say, even as a teacher and years of practice, that my mind doesn't get caught in things. Just like that story that happened just a few years ago, right? Of course it happens. But at the tools of mindfulness help me to work with it. So I was talking about thoughts. And I, before that, I was talking about restlessness. Restlessness when we practice because we were talking about the obstacles. So we can be aware of the restless thinking. If you notice a lot of restlessness in your body and mind, you can relax a little bit. Doing the hearing meditation that we did today can be very helpful if you're feeling restless. You can then also try to remember how to, be rest- how to bring mindfulness to restlessness. What's restlessness feel like in my body and mind right now? It's really interesting. This is going back to what I said earlier about using mindfulness to come to, into whatever the present moment is. This is it. This is your life. Can I be mindful of my obstacle, even when it's something that is not, um, not what you want it to be? If I wasn't, oftentimes we think when we're having an obstacle, if my mind wasn't restless, then I could be practicing correctly. If my mind wasn't sleepy, then I could really have a good meditation. But no, my point is, that is your meditation. Restlessness is your meditation. So let's be with that. That's it. That's what you got. This is a poem from Rumi called The Guest House. He said, This being human is a guest house. Every morning a new arrival. A joy, a depression, a meanness. Some momentary awareness comes as an unexpected visitor. Welcome and entertain them all. Even if they're a crowd of sorrows who violently sweep your house empty of its furniture, still, treat each guest honorably. He may be clearing you out for some new delight. The dark thought, the shame, the malice, meet them at the door laughing and invite them in. Be grateful for whatever comes because each has been sent as a guide from beyond. So you just meet with your meditation practice whatever shows up at the door. Doubt, restlessness, wild thinking, 
Everybody, I mean, it's amazing what these minds think, isn't it? Isn't it amazing? I was saying to a group earlier, imagine everybody here had a little loudspeaker hooked up to their brain, and we had to hear what everybody else thought. Ooh, you wouldn't want people to know, right? (laughs) Our minds are incredible fabricators. They create the universe. Just to kind of briefly go into some more of these obstacles, doubt is another big one that people run into. Am I doing this right? What if I'm doing this wrong? Should I be here? What do the teachers know? Who was that Buddha guy anyway? Why am I bothering with this? You know, our mind can go into lots of doubt. And so it's really important if you notice that, that that is an obstacle, that you see it as doubt and you can really name it and say, okay, doubt is here. I don't need to get sucked into it. It's just doubt. Another hindrance or obstacle we encounter is the obstacle of um, craving or desire. We start fantasizing, getting lost in imaginary scenarios of anything except here. Things we want, things we want to do, people we want, food we want. I remember having a meditation retreat and all I could think about was sushi. I don't know, it was just coming in. I'd be doing walking meditation. And, you know, I told you guys today, you could say lifting, moving, placing. This is when I was living in, um, I was living, practicing in in Burma. And I really missed uh, Western food. And I was doing walking meditation. I was supposed to be saying lifting, moving, placing. And I started noticing I was saying pizza, sushi, bagels. Pizza, sushi, bagels. (laughs) I knew something was really off. Um... So, wow, okay, lost my train of thought. Started thinking about sushi. Okay, taking a breath, coming back into the present moment. I was talking about craving. That's right, (laughs) craving. So desire, craving. We get lost in the fantasy or we want something to be different or even can be wanting your meditation to be like the previous sitting, It was so much better an hour ago. What happened? There's a craving, there's a desire. And our job, again, is to just be present with it. We can notice, we can check into our body. There's often a very strong feeling that's happening inside our bodies when we're craving something, when we're wanting an experience outside of this moment. We can feel it. And then in that way, it becomes the meditation practice. Just to name it is enough. Oh, I'm lost in fantasy. I'm lost in desire. The opposite is lost in aversion. We're meditating and we think, um, you know, I don't like this. Why am I here? I'm angry. You're having angry memories. You're angry at a person who's not here. We can go through lots and lots of suffering and lost in this obstacle of anger, hatred, hostility, aversion. And so again, the practice is, well, one of the practices, the practice of the loving kindness, the metta that Mark taught today, is a beautiful antidote. If you're noticing a lot of aversion arising in your body and mind, bring in some metta on the spot right then. Again, it's also something that you can notice inside yourself. What does aversion feel like? You can really feel it. If you were just for fun right now, Close your eyes for a minute. Maybe you're not going to think this is fun. But think about something you really don't want. You really don't want to happen. It's a, an event, a person, an experience. 
I don't want it, I don't like it. Notice your body as you're feeling this. Take a breath. And now see if you can just relax and soften. See what happens to the aversion as you just take another mindful breath. Okay, open your eyes. Could you feel it in your body, the not liking something? Could you feel it? Not, yes, yeah. It's, it's um, when we're having an emotional reaction, we're often having a physical experience inside our body. And so it's really, really helpful to tune into that physical experience because that's having, happening in the moment. So when you're hating something or having aversion towards something, just check into your body. See if you can feel that. And then if you just take a moment to breathe and soften and get curious about it, you're practicing with it. You're practicing mindfulness. So one form of aversion that's also connected to doubt is the self-hatred and self-criticism that I talked about earlier. And this is something that I have seen as endemic. It is absolutely present throughout this culture and cultures within this culture. People struggle with self-hatred, self-judgment, self-criticism. I spoke a little bit about my own practice. That was a big thing for me. I was very judgmental, very judgmental of, of, um, more judgmental of myself, I think, than others. It's one of my favorite quotes. I have to read it to you. Marie is doing Alice's hair when along comes Tanya, a mutual acquaintance. Tanya has the perfect life, great body, well-behaved children, primo social status, Watching her walk by, Alice admires her beauty, then relaxes into the pleasant sensation of Marie's hands arranging her hair. Marie, by contrast, nearly explodes with jealousy and competitiveness. Her teeth and stomach clench as she watches Tanya flaunt her long limbs, thick hair, and most enviable of all, her hugely swollen rose-red rump. (laughs) Tanya, Marie, and Alice are baboons. Social primates who share around 95% of our DNA and a lot of our psychological traits. Scientists have found that some baboons, like Marie, are extremely competitive. Others, like Alice, more mellow, less worried about measuring up. The more rank-conscious baboons suffer higher blood pressure, a stress-related condition we associate with driven, competitive humans. I read that because it kind of can help us relax a little bit. This stuff is in our biology. It's in our genes to be competitive. And usually it's one or the other. It's, it's comparing and judging everybody else or comparing and judging myself. And sometimes it's both. We get a double dose of it. And we're so, we can be so mean to ourselves, so cruel, cruel. You know, the things we say to ourselves, we would never let other people get away with. No one could ever say that to us, but we can say it to us all the time. And we can be going through the meditation all day today and just one judgment after the next judgment after the next judgment. And it's so painful. Wow, I'm doing walking meditation so poorly. You know, I can't believe I stumbled. That was stupid. What did I, oh, I took too much food. Everybody's staring at, you know, I mean, it's just, (laughs) oops, (laughs) maybe that's, uh, anyway. Um, So, so, 
I just want to encourage you with the, the, the recognition that mindfulness is a tremendous tool for helping with self-judgment. Just like I was, I was talking about um, the way thoughts work and how we cannot get on the train. When our thoughts are thoughts of self-judgment, if we cannot get on the train, we are doing great. If we can go, oh, judging thought, judging thought, we can, we can number them, judging thought two, judging thought three, judging thought 56, and it's still 10 in the morning, judging thought 200. We can, have, we can begin to see that, okay, this is something that's happening inside me. It's not in my control. I didn't set out to make myself feel bad. It's a habit. It's a pattern. It's been, I, why it's in there, who knows? Media, culture, family, peers, education system. But it's in me, and I can be loving towards myself in spite of it. The um, research scientist Kristen Neff developed something called, the, well, it's essentially the idea of self-compassion she, as, a, as something that one can research. Self-compassion is the combination of mindfulness, practices of loving-kindness, and the recognition of our shared humanity. Those three things, and I'll add a fourth before we end, those three things taken together can heal the wound of self-judgment and self-criticism. We take mindfulness to work with the thoughts, with the judging thoughts as they come and go, to see them, to be vigilant. So I really encourage those of you who this is an issue for, and I will say it's not everybody, but many of us suffer from this, to be really vigilant with the judging thoughts, judging, self-judging. Just use it. Use a label. Use a soft label in your mind. Check into your body. What's happening in my body while I'm saying the, while I'm saying these negative phrases to myself? And take a breath and let it go if you can. And try not to judge yourself for judging yourself, right? So we work with it with mindfulness, and then the second piece that works with it is loving kindness. So we learn to cultivate a different way of being. And this is where the neuroplasticity concept comes in so strongly. It doesn't matter if we've been judgmental of ourselves our whole lives. If we can begin to train our brain to be more loving, may I be happy, may I be peaceful, may I be at ease, it actually can transform us. Not in a moment, not in, you know, no, it's not a fast thing, but if we do it consistently, our brains can change and we can be more loving. And I've seen this with thousands of students as they practice the mindfulness to work with the thoughts, as they practice the loving kindness, especially to themselves, to transform, it really transforms the fabric of our being. It transforms who we are because we, we suddenly can't be so blaming of ourselves because we know that we're more, we deserve more than that. Mindfulness, loving kindness practices, and um, recognition of our shared humanity, that we're not the only one. That's why I have you raise your hand a lot. That's why I say, who's done this? Who's done that? So you see you're not the only one. We often think we're the only one. And we suffer a lot because of that. But when we recognize the shared humanity, there's freedom there. Self-compassion is not the idea that I'm, that I'm great, 
I'm never going to fail. That's sort of the self-esteem movement that flopped. You know, the self-esteem movement didn't work. It raised a lot of children who expected their value to come out them from the outside. You know, that you know, the good job. Good job, good job. You just peed. Good job. Yay. You know. It's it's um this is this is this is this is the building of self-esteem which has led to a lot of inflation and the actual lack of self-worth. Self-compassion, on the other hand, says, even though I'm flawed, I'm okay anyway. It's normal to be flawed. It's normal to make mistakes. And inside myself, I'm actually totally fine, even with my flaws. So this is what, this is what self-compassion invites us to remember. The last piece, and I'll just add that for the self-compassion, is a recognition of our own innate goodness. That we are not our anxious thoughts. We are not our judgmental thoughts. We are not our restless thoughts. We are not our anxious emotions. We are not our scary emotions. We are so much greater than all of this. Truly, we are so much bigger than the things we get identified and caught by. There's something within all of us that is loving and good and connected and joyful and humorous and at ease. And this is our true nature. This is really who we are. And when we can begin to part the clouds that are in the way of this and see the radiant sun of our own true nature... This is when we begin to wake up and think we're okay. And this is what the practice of mindfulness can do. The practice of mindfulness can help us move through the obstacles of life, recognize our thinking, learn to love ourselves more, and help us to be present and show up for our life exactly as it is. This is, this is our life. This is it. We don't have any more than this. Can we show up for it? Can we be here? Can we love ourselves in the process? Yeah, we can. We really can. Just end with a quote by... Um, uh-huh. Diane Ackerman, who's a poet, naturalist, writer. She says, On the periodic table of the heart, somewhere between wonderon and unattainium, lies presence or mindfulness, which one doesn't so much take as engage in, like a romance, and without which one can live just fine, but not thrive. So let's just take a moment to settle and connect with ourselves. Taking a breath or two. And just contemplating this day. If you want to in some way appreciate yourself for the hard work of this day. It's not easy what we're doing here. It's really not easy. 
But it's so worthwhile. What if we can have a mind that can be more loving and more free and more connected? And if the concept of one's own goodness makes sense to you, your inner goodness, just take a moment to remind yourself of a time where that inner goodness was present for you on the beach with a friend. In nature, maybe today at Spirit Rock when you felt at home and at ease and peace. Let this access to your true nature, let it be with you. Let it grow. Settle. You're not your thoughts. You're not your fears. You're not your worries. You're so much more than that. Thank you for your attention. We'll move into a walking meditation. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.